Welcome to another podcast episode of DIY Guitar Making. I also produce video episodes of DIY Guitar Making live in the workshop. To find both the podcasts and the videos all in one place, go to DIYGuitarMaking.com. You can even subscribe to the email list there to receive new episodes, both the videos and the podcasts, directly in your inbox as they come out. Again, that's DIYGuitarMaking.com. And with that, let's get to the show. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Good morning, good evening, good night, whatever time of day it is that you're listening to this. Um, Welcome back to the show. Today we have some interesting questions for you because today is Q&A day. That's right. We're doing questions and answers from you in the members forum. How do you get in the members forum? The members forum is a part of the online course Building an OM Acoustic which you can buy on my website at ericshaferguitars.com. So all these questions come from members of that course. And just a reminder to members in the members forum, when you ask these questions in the members forum, please, please, please don't ask them referencing my name at the beginning. I know it sounds a little counterintuitive, but I don't like to receive questions that start with something like, Hey, Eric blah, 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 what do you think of this? And the reason for that is simply that the members forum is a forum after all. It is a community space for people to come together and interact and ask questions and answer other people's questions rather than simply a it just being a direct line to me. Um, so you're actually doing yourself a favor by not referencing my name or anyone's name for that matter at the top of your question because there's about 300 people in the members forum as of right now and so if you address me then you are uh, basically saying you don't want to hear from the other 300 people and there's some really intelligent builders in there some of them are a lot more intelligent than me so you probably want to hear what they have to say anyway I can't answer everything in the forum so if you want your question answered I would just leave it open without my name at the top Otherwise, people will see my name and they'll think that it's not appropriate for them to respond. Anyway, with that little PSA aside, let's go ahead and dig right into our topics. Our topics include boosting harmonics. I have a question on the fifth fret harmonic and what we can do as guitar builders to potentially boost that signal from some of these lesser harmonics. And then I also have a question on reverse kerfing versus traditional kerfing and then lastly i have it's not really a question it's a comment it's a student sharing a jig idea which i always appreciate and love seeing uh, what you guys come up with as far as ways to move the craft forward so that's really cool anyway let's go ahead and get right into your questions okay and so this question comes from eric widditz And the question is, why are some guitars easier to get harmonics on, particularly 5th fret on thinner strings? Is there something that can be built into the physics of the guitar? So, Eric, the first thing that comes to mind for me is simply lengthening the string itself. 
So that means increasing the scale length. When you increase the scale length of a particular instrument, it increases the speaking length of that string. The more string you have, the more harmonic uh, content you can get out of that string. To think of it in another way, imagine you shortening the length of that string, shortening the scale length. What you're essentially doing is compressing all of that harmonic content that you get when you pluck that string. You're compressing that into a shorter scale length. So you can try that out for yourself just by obviously picking up a longer scale length guitar and playing the harmonics on that against a shorter scale length guitar. If you don't have those two guitars, you can easily simulate this for yourself just with a capo. So you throw that capo on there, doesn't really matter where, put it on the the fifth fret or something like that, and then you can play the harmonics off of that capo and compare that to the full length. Putting a capo on there effectively makes it into a short scale length guitar. So other than that, I think as far as the build of the guitar itself, the bracing, the top thickness, anything like that, anything that you would do to increase the responsiveness of the guitar is naturally going to help out the harmonics. At least that's how I see it. Um, If somebody else out there has some specific tweak that they do that is specifically helpful for the harmonics and that fifth fret harmonic, let me know. But my immediate go-to when you ask this question is the scale length. And one more thing I want to add to this. I think, Eric, you understand this based on the way you phrased the question. But just in case other people don't realize this, I want to make it clear right here. The fifth fret harmonic on a given guitar is always weaker than the other common harmonics like the 12th fret and the 7th fret. And that just has to do with the way that you get these harmonics out of the guitar to begin with. So when you're playing a harmonic and you're just gently grazing your finger across the string and plucking it, what you're actually doing is, don't think of it as playing a harmonic so much as muting out all the other harmonic overtones within that string. And so if you look at uh, a picture of how these harmonics are laid out on the string. It basically shows these waveforms and these nodes. What you're doing with your finger is you're placing it at a particular node, and at that node, it mutes out a lot of the alternate wave patterns that you would get from the other harmonics. The 12th fret harmonic is so strong because it doesn't mute out as many alternate harmonics as the 5th fret does. And again, if you just if you go online or pull open a, a book that explains these harmonics, they will show you these diagrams and pictures of the various harmonics and you will see where the top of the waves, the top of the wave intersects with a node on a different harmonic. And so if you're holding your finger at a particular node to get a particular harmonic, and then if you look at the alternate harmonics, every alternate harmonic that has a peak at that node that you're playing at will be muted out when you play that harmonic. This is what determines the strength of each harmonic. And I think just looking at those pictures and realizing that what you're doing is muting out alternate harmonics, you'll realize that 
the 12th fret leaves a lot of the harmonic content intact when you play that, and so it sounds much stronger. But when you play the 5th fret harmonic, you are muting out a lot of those peaks on those waves, leaving just a few harmonics to be heard. And there's always a fundamental harmonic that you're hearing within each one, and that's what gives it the pitch that you discern. But there are other less fundamental harmonics within it that produce the overtone content that gives it some of that power and uh, timber that you get from the note. So the point being just that the 5th fret harmonic is naturally weaker than all the other harmonics. So you can never, on a single guitar, you don't want to compare the 5th fret to the 12th and try to somehow tweak it so that you get the same uh, power out of each one. The 5th fret's always going to be weaker than the 7th, and the 7th is going to be weaker than the 12th. And there are many, much, much, much more subtle harmonics below the 5th fret but those generally aren't even discussed because they are so weak that they don't produce much tone at all. Okay, so that's my answer on harmonics. And just to reiterate what I said in the beginning, lengthen the scale length. I think that's going to be the ticket. Okay. And this next question comes from Alexis. Alexis writes, Is there a difference between reverse curving and normal curving? Or can I just use a normal curfing strip and reverse it? So technically speaking, there is no difference between reverse curfing and normal curving. But in actual practice, when you go to look online or elsewhere to see where you can buy this, you'll find that the traditional curfing is triangular in cross-section. And so you can only use the back side as your glue surface. Um, otherwise, that's going to tilt the top surface the most important part, your your glue surface for the top plate, it's going to tilt that away from the top of the rim there, and you won't be able to actually sand it back and get a nice flat surface there. So you can't just reverse the triangular kerfing that you typically see as traditional. And most of the suppliers that I see that sell reverse kerfing, they chamfer the bottom edge of the kerfing. So if you were to flip that around, you would then be putting that chamfer towards the inside to the glue surface, and that wouldn't be right. But I have seen, uh, at least on LMI, they do sell just plain rectangular kerfing. And in that case, because there's no chamfer and there's no triangular cross-section, then you're free to use either side of that kerfing as your glue surface. I don't really see many suppliers, though, selling this rectangular kerfing. Um, of course, you can also just make rectangular kerfing yourself. When I say rectangular kerfing, I'm simply talking about just a strip of wood that has kerfed slots in it. There's no rounding over. There's no uh, cutting an angle into it. It's just rectangular and cross-section. And also, I want to take a moment here to talk about the idea behind reverse kerfing, why that even exists as a thing. And the idea is that with reverse kerfing, when you glue it with the connected portion of the kerfing facing towards the inside of the sound box rather than gluing that against the rims, that leads to a set of sides that are stiffer 
longitudinally in the area of the kerfing. And why might that matter? That might matter because the kerfing, specifically around the soundboard, sets the outermost perimeter for your vibrational footprint. Right? So if you think of the vibrational footprint of your top as like a speaker cone, which is kind of a crude analogy, but it'll work for this, then the rims and the connection of the rims to the top via the kerfing is like the is analogous to the connection of the speaker basket to the rest of the speaker. I believe it's called the speaker basket or maybe it's the the frame, the solid housing for the speaker cone and the voice coil and all of those components. That's what I'm talking about. If it's not called the speaker basket, then I apologize. I maybe don't know speakers as well as I should. But let's assume it's called the speaker basket. And what I'm saying is that this is this kerfing around our vibrational footprint. We want to be solid like the connection of the speaker basket is to the speaker. So that we don't sap away energy, vibrational energy, into other parts of the guitar, like the rims itself. We don't want to lose vibrational energy to that. Or like on the speaker, we don't want to lose vibrational energy to the rest of the speaker assembly or the speaker cabinet. Now, in the original thread that Gary Rosquist had started here on reverse kerfing, I had actually downplayed what I thought was the significance or the structural significance of the choice between using traditional or reverse kerfing. And now I'm actually uh, rethinking that a little bit. So I think I may have been wrong. And I'm warming up to the idea that this choice is actually, I think, more important to the overall output of your instrument than I previously thought. So I've, I've already been using reverse kerfing anyway just because it's what I've been using but now I'm really starting to think that maybe that is a uh, solid recommendation to give for builders to switch from that traditional kerfing to the reverse kerfing for structural purposes and acoustic purposes. So this is one thing I actually really love about the forum itself is that I get to revisit my thoughts on different things and have conversations with people and um, rethink what I originally, the assumptions that it was originally going off of and potentially overturn those assumptions. As builders, our thoughts on these things should really kind of always be in a little bit of a state of flux so that we're always rethinking things and evolving, hopefully in the direction of better sound. So that's what I think of reverse curving. I think it's good. I think it's a solid improvement from traditional kerfing. Even more solid if you switch to literally solid linings, which is something some people do, where they actually bend strips of solid mahogany or basswood, and they glue those in. That's just a little more solid than the reverse kerfing is, but that's a whole other topic in and of itself. So suffice it to say, for now... Reverse kerfing, good. Traditional kerfing, eh, not as good. Okay, so this question is from David Schiff, or rather this comment is from David Schiff. 
Um, I wanted to share this because he came up with a cool little jig for beveling the ends of your braces, specifically in this case, the side braces. So I'm going to read this for you. My goal for top and bottom bracing is to get good at leaving them crisply beveled rather than sanded round. So I thought, why not do the same for the side bracing? So I came up with this way to quickly give all the little braces a consistent bevel. It's just a scrap of MDF cut at a 45 degree angle and attached to the jack plane with double stick tape. A table saw kerf creates space where the plane iron protrudes. And I like what he says here. He says, for safety, start with a longer piece and cut the 45 off on the chop saw. Always, always, always when you're um, starting something, when you're cutting something that's very small, I always try to do the same thing, you know, making little jigs like this or cutting guitar parts that are very small is just cut on a much, much larger piece so you have that safety because um, many of the accidents that do occur, whether you're using a chop saw or a router or a table saw or anything, comes from trying to cut or shape a very small piece. Like a bridge is a classic example because bridges are very small. Um, but really, any time that you can, just simply use a larger piece and then cut off the part that you're going to use after the fact, that's always a good safety practice. Okay, so let me continue with his comment here. He says, use the table saw fence to cut the kerf part way along the length of the piece, then cut the piece to length on the chop saw. Okay. For convenience and to keep my fingers away from the plane blade, I beveled both sides of the bracing stock about six passes on each side. I also found it easier to sand the top and bottom of the stock before cutting the braces to length. Then it was just a few sanding strokes to create bevels on the ends of each brace. So, and he has a picture here showing what this is. And so what it is, is just he's got his jack plane held in a vise upside down so that he can hold the workpiece and run it along that exposed blade. And then he has fixed to the jack plane a piece of MDF with a 45 degree angle cut into it so that he can use that as a fence to pass those little brace pieces against that fence and into the plane blade. I like it. That's a, a great way of just getting good, consistent results rather than freehanding it uh, when it comes to cutting those angles. Now, the only thing I would say, David, is um, as far as the using the double stick tape to hold that down, uh, that's fine. You can use it. And actually, double stick tape sticks really well to metal. So I don't doubt that that holds really well. Personally, I would worry a little bit about I don't like putting something like double stick tape onto the sole of my plane. It's not the worst thing you can do. And I understand that this is only used in limited circumstances, so you wouldn't be doing it all the time. However, if you could find some way to fasten that to the plane blade without the use of double stick tape, that would be nice. Um, the only thing I can think of off the cuff would be maybe to just simply have a much longer scrap that you're fastening to the plane blade, constructing it in such a way that you can put both the plane blade and the little mini jig into the vise and have the vise itself, when you tighten that down, hold it against the plane blade. Maybe this is something that you already tried and it, it didn't work for 
a variety of reasons. I don't know. I haven't tried this. I'm just thinking off the top of my head here uh, how we could get rid of that double stick tape. But again, if that's the only way to do it, I'm not entirely opposed to, in a limited fashion, putting a little bit of double stick tape onto the sole of the plane. If you enjoyed this and you learned something here, please subscribe and leave a review on whatever platform that you are enjoying this on at the moment. And if you want to really learn more, take one of my structured online courses at ericschaferguitars.com. Or you can register for a hands-on guitar building workshop here with me in Burnville, Pennsylvania. Bye for now.